Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani. And I'm Chuck Mendenhall. And I'm Pete Carroll, and together we are Three Pack. Join us on the brand new Spotify Live app immediately after all of the biggest fights in combat sports. And also during the weigh-ins, because that's when the real drama happens. So what are you waiting for? Follow the Ring MMA show right now on our exclusive Spotify podcast feed. And come join the best community in MMA. Peace! We're out of here. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, he owes me a huge karmic payment. It's Andy Greenwald! And people make fun of me for bringing my backpack with me from room to room. <laughs> I, you never know who's going in your stuff. Andy, it's great to see you, man. I hope a West Ham fan didn't steal your phone over the weekend. Uh, we are going to be talking about the season finale of season two of White Lotus, which aired last night. I want to get into the nuts and bolts of the episode. And then I also want to talk big picture, kind of like what White Lotus and its success this season tells us about TVRN right now. Mm. I saw you over the weekend, but it's still lovely to see your visage right now. This is great. And it's, you know, it's always nice to have a guest. Uh, on the podcast. And by that, I mean Brian Tyree Henry, whose presence is always welcome uh, on television episodes, more than once where he's not on. But it's, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's just us again. It's yeah. just us. Uh, you made reference to our year-end year TV podcast that we do annually with Sam Esmail. And we want to say thank you so much to Sam, who will never be invited back on the pod. Uh, <laughs> he's Sam, worried about that. Sam's Sam, welcome. Sam, Sam could do multiple times per year. I may not do all of them, uh, but if Sam just wanted an outlet for his takes, he could have him in the watch. We love Sam. I do feel bad. I didn't tell him we were done recording. I just backed out. I believe he's still there right. at Spotify <laughs> HQ. <laughs> That's right. Hey, so speaking of our year-end pod, yeah, you on your top 10 list had yeah. White, White Lotus Season 2 as your number eight show of the year. So I thought we would start here. Hmm. Did the finale... Improve White Lotus's standing? Did it drop or did it stay the same? It's a great question. I, I I have to say, like as a parenthetical, post revealing our lists and having a robust conversation about them with Sam, I am 
more anti-list than I was last week, if only because I understand the 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 reason for the exercise and the fun that can come from it. But like communicating to people that just because Severance was our 11th favorite show over the year doesn't mean we hate it is really exhausting to me at the moment. Um, so It's funny you so, should say that because I went the opposite direction. Yeah, because something happened to me over the course of that podcast. As many people have noted, I got a little fired up. And often I, I'm like, I, I would like to think of myself as either some would say non-confrontational, but others mm. might say agreeable, you know? So somebody has an opinion and I just am like, that's cool. That's your opinion, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. And That's why you it, thrive at Twitter. I didn't mind Sam yelling at me about, say, Atlanta season three or whatever. But what I did mind is like when Sam would explain his rationale for his picks, I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me, you know? So <laughs> it's really actually like reawakened in me. It's like, I don't actually think the list is the thing. I think right. it should be that you have to then defend the list with logic that like actually tracks across the entire 10 shows, you know? And that's basically impossible. No, I mean, I think that Sam's argument that House of the Dragon was good because he had friends over every week and they all enjoyed it but we is, were, is a strong but, argument. But we were basically like the people from the beginning of Wally -E because we were like, sometimes we like watching Slow Wars. <laughs> By the way, I just, I really, tr I treasure both what you just said and the fact that you referenced a Pixar movie. Did you watch that with my daughter also? No, I saw the first, I like to give Pixar movies like an, a t an opening 10 minutes because, you know, like that's yeah. where all this, that's where all the powerful stuff to, is, you know? To be uh, clear, the, the, the obese pod people don't show up to like 30 minutes into Wally. -E. Okay. The first 30 minutes, they're just on the dust planet picking flowers and dust and going, Eva, like that. That's the whole thirty minutes. It's that's great right. stuff. Look, let's let me stay focused. What I wanted to say was, the finale absolutely bolstered the White Lotus's case for excellence and to be very high on mine or maybe even anyone's list of best TV shows of the year. I think that if I was going to get like ticky tack about it, get into it, is it? Does it jump? We own the city, probably. The reasons for that are less to do with the excellence of the sticking of the landing of the finale and more about just my admiration for the project as an ongoing project. And again, as we say about We Own the City, of everything else on the list, that feels more siloed to me. It's just absolute excellence from an excellence factory, from Simon Pelicanos Incorporated. And they make, this may have been in some ways their most succinct and greatest argument for what it is that they do, but it, it does not feel connected to the larger cultural conversation in a way that I wish it did, but it doesn't. So I think that the finale, to answer your question in the shortest way possible, which is the way I always avoid, bolstered the case, without question. Right. Uh, I was so impressed by this finale, both as an entertainment product, but also as a, just a statement of Mike White's artistic intent and his ability to execute on that. You know, this show is greeted and obsessed over like a mystery box, which adds to the fun. And one of the most fun things about these last few weeks has been everyone, and I know it's a small sample size, but many people in our lives and beyond talking about it and watching it and enjoying it together. You and I love that. We always talk about that. But the show is not a mystery. It is, as you know, revealed in this episode, kind of a satirical tragedy. And I love the commitment to being what it is, despite the trappings of other things that draw eyeballs, that draw attention, that draw clicks. It was so true to itself in the end. And I found that really impressive, especially with kind of the, I mean, the word bravery gets thrown around a lot, but like, I can't believe he did it, honestly. 
yeah, that was what I came away from this episode with is just a sense of Mike White's a, is a real one. Because yeah. yeah, think about this guy's career. I think that he has been widely or at least uh, passionately respected. Let's put it that way. He's been passionately respected by a niche audience. He was sort mm-hmm. of a writer's writer, a critic's fave, but had not experienced like a ton of commercial success. At least, like that we knew of him. Maybe he's rewritten some stuff, or no, like like School of Rock, but School that's... of Rock. But like in his TV outings, especially mm-hmm. with Enlightened, which I think was a very painful experience for him because it meant so much to him, and he had had the star vehicle for one of his favorite performers in Laura Dern, and it was it's got a very devoted cult following, but did not ever catch on as like a, mm-hmm. a massive hit show, not the way White Lotus has, and so now he gets that. Now he finds himself <laughs> making one of the the truly like talked about shows of the year and of the last couple of years, and maybe one of the only actual authentic success stories to come out of the COVID production changes that hit television. And he gets to the end of the season two, and what does he do? He kills his darling. You know, he kills what I thought was his muse on this yeah. show. And then when you watch the after sh- after the show, kind of the post. Uh, HBO wrap up with him he's kind of delighted by it he's yeah. kind of delighted by Tanya's death and finds it kind of amusing and and has this sort of sick dark sense of humor which I think is definitely in the the DNA it's in the bloodstream of this show and it actually is like an essential part of it but I was so so happy kind of not not because I was like yes Jennifer Coolidge no longer but like because I was like this is a guy who could easily be making season six of White Lotus where does Tanya wind up now and probably 75 80 percent of the people watching this episode would be be along for the ride and I probably would be too and then instead he's like that's not the world view that this show has it 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 was I'm gonna say it fuck it It, it's an incredibly brave artistic choice and it and it was absolutely rewarded, and we'll talk about the specifics of the scene. One thing that carried over this entire experience of the second season was, quite simply, what is the White Lotus as an ongoing show? We talked about this, I think, a little bit last week as well. And there were a lot of possibilities, most of them decent to good, if not great. And the version of it where it's a, you know, we swan around the world with Jennifer Coolidge as our tour guide, basically, that's a hit show. That's fine. Nobody's mad about that, you know. Um, when we saw the we when the season began with bodies, I was like, okay, he's found a formula. When he was on, and I know you're going to drag me for it, but this Fresh Air interview was really good. When he's on with Terry Gross and he's talking about the importance of Fantasy Island to him as a kid, you know, and the kind of it, the kind of TV Sam hates, where it's just like wrapped up every week and started over again. Like there are worse things to use as your totems, as your inspiration. You can still do good work within the boundaries of something like that. But that's not what he's interested in. It's just not. And it's interesting. It's an interesting comment on, I think, how all of us have, and, I, and not necessarily a negative one, have kind of absorbed TV, not just as what's on our screen, but the experience of it, the creators, we pay attention to what's going on behind the scenes, what it means, the working relationships, et cetera, et cetera, work-life balance, you know? And I, you could say, well, Mike White has found this success where not only can he make something good that people like, but he can travel the world with his good friend. Because mm-hmm. that's also been the subtext, right? Is that he, he and Jennifer Coolidge are very close, and he sees something in her that maybe others missed, and so he's given her these showcases and these opportunities. Who begrudges someone for, like, going to luxury properties with their pals on HBO's dime? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. 
but he respects her and he respects the audience and he respects the opportunity to make something so much that he's like, no, I'm not just going to coast here. I'm going to take someone that I love and a character that I love and give them the ultimate showcase, which means treating them fully without kid gloves or without any emergency handbrakes, right? And this was, to my mind, she won an Emmy last year. This is exponentially a more interesting and better performance. Oh, yeah. And the path that it took, what it meant for the show, what it meant for him, what it meant for her as a character and an actor, pretty unparalleled. And like, and and it was surprising. You know, I said at the beginning, it's not a mystery box, but this was this was surprising. Or maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm mixing up the words. Maybe well, it was no, shocking I, and not surprising. But it it really it really was something that that took me back. Yeah, I, I think that we can, we can talk a little bit about how the mystery boxing of this show sort of subsumed or or took over the the discourse around it after a while. But I I think it's like. You know, we you, you basically have to like keep people coming back, right? You have mm-hmm. to leave the breadcrumb trail now. And I found that where this breadcrumb trail led was by far the most interesting use of that tactic that we've seen in recent memory. So is like you you basically like coach people into they must sit down at 9 p.m. wherever they are. Mm-hmm and watch this show as it happens because something could happen and they want to be, they don't want to get it spoiled or they want to be able to start talking about it as soon as possible. But the, that's just the Trojan horse to put in all this stuff about the transactional nature of sex or, um, how to really be happy in the, in your life or like what, what it is to, you know, all these questions that Mike life's obviously Mike White's obviously more interested in than, a murder mystery in Italy, although he's obviously quite good at telling a murder mystery in Italy. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is, I think he actually got way better at doing the genre stuff, if or, or at least threw himself into the genre stuff in the second season as compared to the first but, season where it was almost like in the first season, there's a body bag and it was like, eh, I just did this for HBO yeah. and now here's this no, show. He, he, again, like in interviews, he's very upfront about the fact that like, he figured people would be interested if there was a body. Like it, there, it's not cynical. It's actually just kind of smart business. You right. know, he he gets that, and that, and it works. So why wouldn't he continue to do it? But I, I agree with the substance of what you're saying, which is, I think he was more inspired and excited by it here, and I think it was clearly influenced by the setting too, and and you know, inter, Italian cinema, and and we, you know, we've mentioned Sam mentioned Antonioni and Fellini. Like these are things that he's watched and he knows, and. What's interesting about him, though, and I think is it's not unique, but it's rare in creators, is that he's very comfortable being the writer that he is and letting that kind of seep into or ooze into other genres, but never really straying from what it is that he does and never being self-conscious about that. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is the entire Tanya Quentin plot is not complicated. It is not full of twists and turns and surprises. It seems too good to be true. And then it is, and we see the flash of darkness in Quentin almost, you know, as soon as they get to Palermo. We've known that something was cooking since episode five. When she goes into, and I was referencing it at the beginning, as Nicola or Nicolo's bag. Nicolo's, yeah. And it, it, it's literally a, a bag from a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, it's like base, It's like the clue, the clue pieces. It's like yeah. a candlestick, some rope. Yeah. Yes, like a, like a bear trap. I mean, it, it, what, what else could be in there? I mean, she finds the props for the murder of an heiress. I mean, it, she is, in a way, all of it is performance, which is part of it. But 
the emotional devastation and inevitability of it and the way it tracks to the type of um, humor that he has, the type of story that compels him. I, I, I don't, it, I guess what I want to say is it, it, it's really impressive and inspiring that it's just what he wanted to do and he stayed true to it. So that at the end, it is, yeah, it's surprising. It's violent in a way the show hasn't been. It goes to some some unexpected places. But when she's pointing the now emptied gun at Quentin, who is who is drowning in his own blood on the floor of a yacht he can't pay for, and she says, "Is Greg cheating on me?" That's everything, right? Yeah, it's 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 horrifying and human and cringe and true, and that's what this whole show has been building to. And he pulled it off. He pulled it off with a plum and style, and we all watched it like it was a murder mystery, but it it wasn't. Yeah, and I thought that the best part about it, the best part about the episode in general, was the what wasn't said and what wasn't mm-hmm. explained and what wasn't on screen. So, let's talk about some of these unsolved mysteries. For one thing, Quentin does not have a last gasp expository speech about meeting Greg, <laughs> fly fishing on acid, having yeah. some kind of you know, uh, illicit affair, or maybe he's just got a like a long-standing candle for this guy that's never burned out. He doesn't talk about the mechanics of their plot against her. He doesn't talk about how Greg has always felt like she was using him and now he was using her or that she had always wanted, she was never going to be happy with him. So he wanted to, uh, it, there was never any like explanation. Just the same way, there's no explanation of whether or not Ethan and Daphne consummated a relationship while they yep. went on that little walk to Bella Isla or like whatever it was. And we also never really get deeply into this psychology of Lucia and her con, I guess, of Albie. You yeah. know, like she never says like, well, I really would like to go back to Los Angeles with Albie or this is the one time where I've really liked a guy that I've been with, but this is ultimate. No, I mean, they they go traipsing off. Like as I know in Fresh Air, he based... Uh, Lucia and Mia on Laverne and Shirley, they go traipsing off like the like the title sequence for Laverne and Shirley at the end, you know? Like that's all left there for us to kind of fill in the blanks. And there are so many moments in this episode, my favorite being probably when the three generations of DeGrasso men ogle a woman uh, yeah. as she walks by and it was almost like Albie had just himself kind of settled into the transactional nature of of sexual relationships and kind of accepted, well, you get what you pay for. And if I pay for it, I get to just turn and look at a woman. Like, you know, you can see these people get corroded and corrupted. And I, I thought that the fact that he didn't fill out every, every word of it was, was quite brilliant. It, it's, it's really a testament to his ability as a writer uh, to get a large swath of the American television viewing public to not only sign off on, but, but, you know, give an enormously high approval rating to a show where no lessons are learned. You know, I, I, I'm trying to figure out, like, where did we, wh- what did these people figure out? What have they learned? And I think what's amazing is, again, you know, the spirit of what I was saying last week about a show made by people who've gone to therapy and are kind of frustrated by it. Like, they've seen things. They've seen things in themselves that maybe surprised them or, you know, uh, made them uncomfortable. But what are they going to do about it? Vacation's over, you know, back to the real world. And you think about, before we get into the other stuff, because I think you could make an argument that like there wasn't room for some of those things and, you know, for, for more uh, 
more of a, a punctuation mark on the end of those other plots uh, sentences. But the thing about the Tanya story that's really worth circling back to, I think, even before we get to the other characters, is she got everything she wanted right up to the very end. Well, I think that's the point the, of the, what is happening the, in Palermo and on that boat, is that in some ways, to my read of it, was Greg and Quentin cook up this plot, but that mm-hmm. the the way they either they make themselves feel okay about it or or the idea for it is that we're going to give this woman everything she's ever wanted. Yes, we're going to... I mean, as she says, another amazing thing about the show is Mike White's operating strategy for dialogue seems to be Michelle Obama's when people show you who they are, believe them. Like, everyone right. says who they are. Right. We don't listen or we squint or we see it through someone else's prism or lens or... She says to Portia, right? Like, everyone is just always dressing me up as a doll. And then... They let her live La Dolce Vita. Right. You know, she's so happy with them in a way that we haven't seen this character be because they are celebrating her. They celebrate who she is, her quirks, her bright colors, her interest in substances, whatever. You know, it, 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 yeah, to your point, like it, it's a celebration of her right up, until the, right up until the very end. That's chewy. That's sticky. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Right. And, 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 it, and it also helps because you could look at this and do something that I think is not productive, which is, wait, what was their plan? Why was their plan? Her husband, who seemed like a nice guy for two episodes, shows up and then lures her to Sicily for this very extravagant murder by yacht. I mean, it's ridiculous. But it is tonally appropriate, A, for the, you know, the sort of, when you're on vacation, when you're in Sicily, indulgent, rich indulgence of the season, it tracks. But more importantly, you stay with the character and you see what's being done to her and, and you feel all of the things that you're meant to feel. Yeah, I thought that Tanya's plot and Albie's plot, mm-hmm. both, both were kind of about, if it feels good, does it matter that you're paying for it? Mm-hmm. You know, and for Tanya, it was like, if it feels good to be the center of attention, to finally be worshipped, to finally finally be taken seriously and to be paid attention to, does it matter that it could cost you your life? And for Albie, if it feels good to feel virile and sexually wanted and important and not like this kind of beta who Portia pushes around and probably has happened in other relationships, does it matter that you're paying for it? And in some ways, I guess that also applies to people like Harper, where it's like, in the end, she finally rekindled Ethan's sexual interest in her, but had to drive him to the point of a breakdown. And obviously, I think it may be into the arms of another woman. So she, she in, a, in a sense, pays for it, you know, like in that sense. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about those guys. Yeah, because, because I found that... The, at the end, at the end of the show, I think if you could make any not complaints, but if you were gonna like just throw some some critiques up on a whiteboard, one would be that I found Ethan's character to be almost so blank that I didn't really know how to not even how to feel about it, but like what really was going on behind his eyes, you know, like did yes, his sort of like you know increasing like uh, sense of mania about Harper's infidelity. And his conviction that she's done this, which I guess turns out to be right. And then he goes off with Daphne. It was like a little bit of like feeling around in the dark for me there. How did you feel about that? Well, again, I think one of the great triumphs of the scaffolding of the show is that Mike White could make a story about four couple, about two couples, about four people 
and not really move the needle too much. Have it kind of just sort of boil and boil or simmer and simmer and simmer and then end the season because there were highs and lows around it. Um, you know, so just in terms of like the orchestra, that was really well done because you can't make that show be its own thing mm -hmm. because the lesson of it, which I found really profound and not something I've seen on TV so much is um, everything is choices. There is no larger karmic scale of restorative justice in emotional and interpersonal relations. You know, he, that the fight that, that Ethan and Harper have where he's just like, but I didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. He thinks that entitles him to something. And her opinion is, so what? Because to her, in her internal scale of justice, it that didn't matter. The greater sin, yeah, and his negligence is a is a is, is, is a, a greater crime. Thing. yeah. And those value systems are never going to be aligned, which is low key one of the interesting things about those two couples all season, right? Because at the beginning of the season, Harper is turning to Ethan, being like, "We're not like them because we have morals and we read newspapers." Um, but what the season revealed was that they are all in these very fraught balancing acts. Only, but only one couple is enjoying it, mm -hmm. and that's a choice. And it, it it was almost it's interesting. The the moment when they get up from the dinner table and join them was to me one of the most masterful things of the season. Almost underappreciated, and by me, I think even by audiences, with so many other things going on, I'd I'd like to rewatch that scene because so much is in it. You know, as they're sitting down to dinner, I'm watching the show, and I'm like, first of all, I can't believe they're still at this fucking restaurant. <laughs> Like just just once, you know what once, I mean. Once more to the breach, baby. It's it's just insane. Um, Bring out the I was like, I, 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 I was like, I can't believe they're gonna eat together again after everything that's happened on this day. And then they're not. And then what Cameron and Daphne teach them is almost the abiding creed of their existence, which is you fake it till you make it. Right. They are right. choosing. To say this was a good experience, this was a good trip, and by the end, I believe by their behavior in bed and afterwards, Ethan and Harper agree. They're like, we we can hold on to this, these resentments and these angers and these things about how how things should be. You don't do that, but clearly you do do these. People do these things. You can do them, and you can then choose to be okay with it or not. But you can't. Well, I guess you can. Many people do. But the one thing that maybe isn't the best outcome is to choose to kind of participate in it, but be angry and resentful about it like someone's making you do it. And yeah. I think by the end of that meal, they're like, this wine is good. These vongole, it's been consistently good for the last eight nights of dinner. Are we sure it's not the vongole from, from Monday? It, it could be. <laughs> it's unclear. I, I would be interested in the specials board at the White Lotus Rest. Like, do they, you know, does Chef have like Taco Tuesdays? Does he keep yeah. it moving? Well, that was one of the things that was funny about this season is that, you know, the first season is much more about these sort of spoiled guests who are very yes. much paying to be waited on hand and foot and made to feel special by the staff and so much so that the Murray Bartlett character essentially goes crazy doing it. And then this season is much more about these guests wanting to feel important in the eyes of their partners or in the eyes of their, you know, loved... Like, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a little bit more... The transactional nature of these relationships moves from from like the sort of employee-employer kind of dynamic to the lover dynamic, which I thought was pretty pretty savvy on White's part. You know, another savvy thing he did was he cast this show impeccably. It's only seven hours about, you know, 
give or take maybe 745 after you add up all the other stuff that's in it. And I feel like I've been living with these characters for mm-hmm. seasons. And one of the reasons why is because I think once you get used to the way certain performers have their rhythms, the Ethan Harper casting, especially the the Will Sharp, uh, Aubrey Plaza casting, it's like, that just feels like a real couple. That feels like a real yeah. couple of like kind of very flat affects. You know, she's flat, but has like a little bit of like some porcupine needles to her. And then Ethan is very much like everything is kind of a poker face for him. And you never really know how he's feeling about a situation until he explodes. And I, I just have to say, I mean, like, and then co- contrast that with Megan Fahey and Theo James, who even though we never really find out if they've brought Harper and Ethan on this trip because they're trying to get money or because they actually just don't really have any friends and this is like, the, we yeah. can only travel with people as rich as us because you don't want to get into a situation where like certain people can't afford stuff. I thought like the contrast between those two sets of casting was great. I, I, I think that the, I ultimately, again, this is so hard to pull off. I love that I don't care about the Cameron and Daphne reasoning. You know, I think because what they did do is they turned them. They have turned Harper and Ethan into them. Them or a version of them or people that they can actually, I don't know if get along with because they seem to be able to get along with anyone, but that they can understand by the end. So it, it it's an incredible turn. Like it, the money part, the professional part, becomes irrelevant, right? And and I thought it was a really nice, as we always say, Mike White is very, 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 very aware of what people are tracking, even as he's writing it. Like, I think he really relishes dangling chads, if you will, to a degree that doesn't feel manipulative. It feels celebratory. So I think he was aware that people would be clocking, does Cameron ha- even have money? Is that what this show is about? Does it matter in the end? No, but it, he does pay Lucia, you know, which then whether it's the reason why she ghosts on Albie or not, it reminds the audience, whether it reminds her or not, we don't know, that this is transactional. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you thought two things. I had two unanswered questions around that, which is one is, do you think that Cameron paying Lucia changed the calculus as to whether or not she was going to go to LA with Albie or if that was ever even in cards? Did you think that 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 there was a causal thing there? A cause and effect there? I don't know if I have an answer in terms of the character. I think its placement in the show suggests yes and is important for that. You know, mm-hmm. that especially she, she's paid and she's happy and she turns to Mia who's achieved what she wants too and it all works out for them. Yeah, you know, so, it does. It does. And it, I mean, because she has that crisis, literally a crisis of faith earlier in the season where she's just like, this is bad. Like we're doing bad stuff here. We shouldn't yeah. be doing this. And then Mia kind of turns, and I think that Lucia is like, what have I done? And then she meets Albie, and off-screen concocts this, Alessio is going to be my fake pimp who's going to like con this guy into... But is it fake? Yeah, he's like a doorman at a hotel. He's like a lovely... like He seems like a That's lovely little guy. That's who that was. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I wanted to track that. that I was wasn't a con- entirely that was sure a, that. I think that was all a con. That like yeah. Him following them and smoking yes. and being like the rough pimp is like completely uh, okay, good. fiction. I thought so, that was what's happening, but I was not tracking it. But I wonder whether or not earlier in the season, she's like, this is this is a mugs game, like waiting on these guys to to go to the bank to cough up euros. Yeah. Is a losing proposition. But, but then at the end of the season, she's like, holy shit, like this pimp thing works and this guy paid me and I walk out of here with what, 63,000 euros or whatever. But also, isn't, isn't romance a mugs game? I mean, I think that sure. that's the other piece of sure. it. Sure, you know, yeah. like 
Albie being they're, like, they're, I'm going to take this woman back to Los Angeles with me is, is a mugs game. Literally everything on this season that appears too good to be true is too good to be true. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, Tanya being celebrated by the high end slash murderous gaze, whether it's um, Portia, Portia finding the, the one soccer hooligan who's going to like keep it together and show her a good time in Palermo or in Sicily. But, but, but also it's, it, you know, the Tanya storyline isn't exactly subtle, but the small things that we're not going to spend a lot of time focusing on, right? Like you, you referred before to the Albion Portia dynamic and like we know from early on in the season by episode two, Portia's like, whether she says it or not, she's like, I have bad instincts when it comes to men you know, mm-hmm. or, or it comes to relationships. It doesn't mean she should be attracted to Albie. Based on her it clothing choices, based on her clothing choices, she might just have bad instincts. The clothing really is triumphant. And there were some, some articles written about the, the, the design and especially with the Gen Z character. Like, I loved it. I think that's just an unsung hero of the show is the, is the wardrobe department. But, but you know, like we, the, the show exists in a place of um, nuance that a lot of shows just aren't afforded the opportunity to get to, whether they're able to or not, whether the creators can even pull it off. Like, Albie is a better choice for her than the fucking lunatic, Jack, but Mm -hmm. the heart wants what it wants, as a great filmmaker who we don't talk about anymore once said, right? Like, that's just... That's what the show exists in that and allows so, that to that be like the Michael case. Is that like Ch- Michael Chimino, who are you talking it was about? Michael, it was Michael Chimino. Yeah, he, he, he wanted to keep spending on Heaven's Gate, from what I understand. Um, I wanted to... Oh, I have one more unanswered question I wanted oh, to okay. throw Okay, because I, I did want to go back to Ethan and Harper, but that's let's, why let's I, unanswered. That, good, good job, because I want to know whether you thought that Ethan and Daphne slept together. I love that we don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel what was, what was interesting to me about that scene... And again, if you're doing stealth MVPs of the season, Megan Fahey is maybe number one. I loved her performance throughout. And she does a thing in these scenes. like that. She basically gives the same speech twice, right? Mm-hmm. She gives the speech to Harper where she shows the picture of her kid who may actually be the, the son of her trainer. And she says it essentially again, which is you have to find a way not to be the victim in the story. And when you make that decision... It's easier. Mm-hmm. It's literally easier. That that that's money makes things easy, but actually choosing she, she's modeling how yeah. to like enjoy life, no matter what's underneath the hood. She's like, I want a massage. Yes. I want to go to the island. I want to do this. Like like she wants to go to Nodo and get drunk with a friend, and it doesn't matter if it blow, like winds up setting off all this stuff in motion. And I think that. You, you know that in it, you can take a step back from the Harper Ethan Megan uh, mm-hmm. Harper Harper Ethan Daphne Cameron storyline and be like, mm-hmm. there's almost a mythical quality to what Cameron and Daphne extract from Ethan and Harper. They're almost like their got gui- their guides through another world. You know the yes. underworld. And this is the thing that I love about this entire arc. She's not wrong. Now, do I condone mass infidelity? Do I? condone mass online donations to cute bunny we, charities when you're drunk honestly, at night. We, on this podcast, we don't. We don't. We don't. No. This is a, this is a very this is a podcast Catholic for, podcast. For monogamy, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and hot Carrie Lake takes. That's just what we do. What we, Those two things are not service. related at all, but no, okay. apparently not. Um, just like when people try to pin us down. You know what I mean? That's right. People, <laughs> what did he say, Mike? My my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. That's what Elon Musk said. Yes. Yeah, sure. 
You, you can't tell with that guy. It keeps you guessing. Love it. So good faith, all of it. Um, no, Why do you I, act my, like what, you're not on Twitter? You fucking pulled, you had that pulled out so quick. You, you really are not on Twitter. I told you yesterday, every Sunday, I open the app to read people talk about how good the Eagles are because it fills me with happiness. Okay. And when you open the app, it's generally a reply guy whom I follow, quote tweeting Trump or Elon Musk being like, not so, sir. You know, so that's how I learn about the issues of the day. Okay. Um, Ethan reply, and Daff- Daffy. Is the reply guy you? Maybe. It's not. You Maybe. know it's not. On you your burner. All I do is is re- reply to Carrie Lake like, yes, queen, keep serving this diffused look. <laughs> that is that is also accurate. Um, uh, I think that I think that Daphne is really is onto something in the sense as someone who has an experience, you know, like many people, like has a relationship with anxiety or can whose mind can cause problems or obsess over problems that might not actually have happened yet. You know, you could just you remove yourself from the present and you park yourself in some future catastrophe because that feels more familiar or more manageable. It can be you can work on that. Like that is change that you can do or you can be present in it. Now, would I perform my life the way she does? Unclear. But I think that what's interesting about her is like with many of the characters on the show is that they are kind of flawed avatars for interesting points of view that come up either in therapy or in actual adult life. Did something happen? I think it became mythical at that point. Mm -hmm. I think she took him to an oracle, essentially. She showed him something, you know, and whether it was just the content of what she said to him or whether they had some sexual experience on this island, the result is the same. Right. He learned something about how to be in the world that was not working for yeah, him. Yeah, he has that weird grin for like basically the rest of the episode. Yeah, he learned something. And I and I am a big fan when used correctly and sparingly of the glowing briefcase in Pulp Fiction, which essentially the, that's what this was. You know, right. Right. there is something more than this that causes human behavior. And it, you could say there are a hundred solutions. There are a hundred possibilities or hypotheses as to what it is. Now, Behind all this, I think you said at the beginning, like, Ethan was a pretty blank character. And I think that, I'm actually, I, I think the performance is really cool and really interesting. And I'd love to see him, I can't wait to see him in other things I'd never seen. And you can Will get Sharp away with anything. that in an ensemble, especially one where you've got Haley Lou Richardson and the Italians and F. Marie Abraham and yes. Jennifer Coolidge. Bigger performers. Going for it in a big way, you can have like a, also a yes. muted corner of the show. And then his sort of unraveling over the course of the season, I thought was very effective. You know what I mean? Like this is a guy you can kind of imagine him being really fastidious. If he's doing something in tech or in software or whatever, like, you know, if he's coding, a lot of this stuff is like ones and zeros to him. And mm-hmm. if he's like, I didn't do anything, but I know Eric, that you thus. did. Yeah. So I am morally like justified in in demanding a reckoning here. That's like it really made sense to me, even though they never really got into a side speech where Harper tells Daphne, "Well, Ethan's this coder and he sees everything in binary." You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I mean, what, you don't what have I have to liked, say that. You don't have to say that. Would I? Could you make the case that I would have liked a little more? about yeah. like what makes him tick or, or, or not what makes him tick, what he does and maybe about their relationship. Maybe, how maybe it I exists. don't want the Vongoli every night. You know what I'm saying? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but if you go down that path and you consider 
you know, in the way you would if you were in like in a writer's room or if you were Mike White, like there's not a ton of real estate. It's a very busy ensemble with a lot of different things to, you know, to to give time to and attend to and explore. The broad strokes are that he's kind of incelly, right? Like that there's a element of him that could go in that direction. He was slightly bullied and in, introverted. Right. And, and he has, has and everybody he's ever expressed a romantic interest in not everybody, but in, during people. college, he would express interest in a woman and, and Cameron would just go and, and sleep with him. And he's furious. There's anger. Mm-hmm. And there's anger and resentment about all of his circumstance because he is essentially coding his way out of it just as he is performing his own physicality in a different way. He is, you know, he's super jacked and ripped. He runs every day. Um, he's transformed himself and he's transformed his circumstance, his circumstance financially as well and hasn't, really advanced beyond his reasons for doing that, right? Like, it was kind of, it's clearly all a fuck you. But what, do you keep saying fuck you when you've plateaued? Like, he did it. Mm-hmm. So so then what? And I think there was some meat on the bone, as Jalen Hurts likes to say after another dominant win, like, in terms of the attraction stuff, like, why does he, I mean, porn is porn, but like, does he feel deserving of a different type, archetype of partner, or wife, or multiple, that does he feel deserving of that? You know what I mean? Did he want to be with Lucia and Mia that night, but he insists that he's better than that? Like, all of that, you could say you want more of it, but as I'm saying it, I'm like, it was there. Right. On a rewatch, it's probably all there. And the other thing that that Mike White does really well, that is to all of our benefit, is not just the casting, but the, the partnerships, the scene partnerships. Um, Aubrey Plaza is a very specific performer. So who you pair her with has to work. And it has to work and build over time so that when they have the scene, the confrontation scene, you're buying both of them. You know, you're believing the lived in nature of it and that her her quirks and peaks and valleys line up with his in a way. And I, th- I thought we really saw that in this. You know, it, I wonder how much of that is also, it's casting, but it's also all these people really are living in Sicily together. You, do you read the interview with Adam DeMarco who plays Albie where he's just like... Yeah, no, Phoebe we, did, because Phoebe did like a whole thing. She interviewed Aubrey Plaza for GQ and, and Aubrey was like, playing like these sort of long-term pranks on, on Adam DeMarco. Did, did you see Adam DeMarco had never seen The Godfather? Yeah, I did. That was good. That, that, that's cute. Yeah. What, what did you, th- speaking of him in that storyline, I mean, there's a version of this where the DeGrasso plot line, nothing happened. Right? I mean, Like they yeah. arrived and then they yeah. left, which maybe I think it was, is the point. It's interesting. It's hard to say, I, I'd like to take each one of these sort of little micro- storylines and then say here's what this was about and in some ways i think that the degrassos was about like sort of like having their illusions wiped away like obviously uh bert thinks they're going to go back and that this connection with their homeland is going to somehow enrich or save a life of perhaps you know not great behavior by him you know that like connecting to this like far flung part of his family will redeem mm-hmm. the fact that he's probably broken the family that he he had you know in in America and for Albie he's the illusion that he's the guy in you know that the that the sex worker with a heart of gold is actually going to fall for and, and that he broke the curse of the family he's yes. he's enlightened he's right. different. And then for for Dom, I'm not really sure what it is. Maybe it's that like you know, for him, I think he's in 
purgatory this entire time. He's like serving time and needs to come out one way or the other on the other side. And kind of, I guess, by just standing steady throughout this entire season yeah. after the early trespasses, thinks that he's like, he's under the illusion that he has like sort of ser- served his penance. I mean, let's specifically, let's talk about that. I think what's cool and why we love and why everyone loves especially people with podcasts love talking about the show is that it can be multiple things at once and it's mm-hmm. open to interpretation. There's an argument to be made that no one was more underserved this season than Michael Imperioli and that character. That, to your point, he began with a head full of steam and other things and then settled into Dante's Purgatorio for mm-hmm. the remainder of the season. And he was either playing his anger up towards F. Murray Abraham or his disappointment and condescension down towards Albie. You could then take another step in a different direction and be like, that's part of the sneaky triumph of the show, that the plight of the incredibly rich and successful philandering white man is not necessarily the main A story of the show the way it was the A story of the last 20 years of prestige television, and that because $50,000 means nothing to him except as a karmic payment, he doesn't need to learn. The rich guy wearing cool sunglasses is no longer the main character. And he's fundamentally uninteresting because he doesn't have to change because he can use his status and his power and his money to bend reality to accept him back. He hasn't changed. He hasn't learned anything. He's seen some things. He's If he suffered anything, it's some indignity or embarrassment in the eyes of his son, which does matter to him. But it doesn't matter to him enough to see beyond the short-term gain of like, You'll, you'll make things good with your mother for me mm-hmm. based on nothing other than what Albie wants. I mean, so that's kind of what I love about the show. Like hidden in, it's not just that he hides, you know, the things that interest him uh, character-wise or emotionally within a murder mystery and he, he gets away with a Trojan horsing it. He's doing a lot of other things too that I think are significant. Like having a character just sort of settle into purgatory for the entirety, the majority of the season and leaving us with that. You're yeah. not supposed to do that. That that flouts all note giving. It flouts all television structure uh, advising. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. But it lands because there's so many other so many other planes in the air. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams, so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Let's talk a little bit before we get to some sort of macro lessons that this show taught us this season. Let's talk a little bit about the Italians, right? right? Let's talk a little bit about Valentina and Lucia and mm-hmm. Mia. For Valentina, she also learns like that happiness can be bought to some extent as well, right? That the, these trade-offs that you can make in life. She starts this season repressed, I think very much like has a lot of her guard up all the time. And then over the course of the season, learns to use her power in a non-petty way. Like usually mm-hmm. it's just like rearranging who's going to stand next to Isabella at the front desk. That's that's right. That's her name. Yeah. And then she sort of accepts her kind of, I am the director. That's what she says to Giuseppe. She's like, I, I am the director here and I can call security and this is who I want to have singing and playing piano. And and she's like, yeah, like I can have this girlfriend for a night and then these girls are going to hook me up 
with with some Palermo lesbians or or whatever, and yep. we'll, we'll just get it get it rocking from there. Um, what did you think of the 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 sort of conclusion of that plot line? I, I, to me, interestingly, as you're asking it, Valentina and Ethan are similar. Yeah, your moral outrage and unhappiness is a choice. She's much happier at the end. Yeah, she's not fighting it. You know, and and to her credit, like everything Mia does in the back half of the season is transactional. Is, it, is the lesson of the show that people need to get laid? <laughs> I think that I think Mike White would say yes. Yeah. I think that that's, that's a strong argument. I'm I'm okay. So what are what are we for? What's our platform <laughs> on this podcast? Sex positive, counting every vote, it, counting every election integrity. Yeah, those are our those are our hallmarks. Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess I wanted, like, me. everything Mia does is transactional. She gets what she most wants, but she's not mean about it. You know what I mean? It's she's it's a little mean when she double doses Giuseppe, but that wasn't intentional. The Valentina thing was so interesting because she's just like, that was great. You're really cool. I had a nice time. I should introduce you to some proper lesbians. Yeah. And Valentina's like, okay. And then she gets her job from that. I, I don't feel like that was a con. You know, I kind of like the different layers of it on the show where... People use pressure points to get what they want, but I, I don't have a moral judgment about that. That seemed to be fine. And it, and, it, and it was surprising. That was an example where season two zagged from season one when we were introduced to a kind of harried um, manager of the resort, right? I think I, that, that was a worthwhile change from what expectations may have been at the start of the season. I only had one other thing that I wanted to throw at you about the sort of scene-to-scene -scene work that happened in the finale, and that is that this was an episode that I thought showed the uh, totality of Mike White's grasp of filmmaking and storytelling. Because I have to admit, again, my wife Phoebe and I really did it up last night. We made like a lemon ricotta pasta. Look at you. We popped like a, a sparkling white that had like some tangerine over like notes to it. It was really quite nice. W would you characterize me as a sparkling white? <laughs> sometimes sometimes not always sometimes a little flat uh, a little, and we know it took us basically two hours to get through this episode between the pausing and the chatting and stuff like that and i think part of it was that like there were some real nail bite white white knuckle moments in this episode no more so than the the jack porsche stuff which yeah. i thought was just fucking awesome and breathtaking and really like you know i saw a bunch of rembert uh, our buddy Rembrandt, especially being like, I can't believe she waited until she gets in the car to start asking all these questions. Yeah. But I was like, damn, I don't like when he takes her to the outside of the airport in Catania, I was like, this is an incredible place for this to end. And I thought that the kid is that Leo Woodall is the name of the guy Leo playing Woodall, Jack. Yeah. What a fucking fine that guy is. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I know that he is basically like I'm from Essex and I, I feel like he's going to be in in stuff for a while now, and I thought he was dynamite. I thought Haley Richardson did a great job, completely filling out every part of mm -hmm. of Portia, and I was like, legitimately, like this is a great thriller during those scenes. Do you know when um, when actors are interviewed, even sometimes when we interview actors, and something that almost always comes up is. Did you fill in a backstory? Yeah, right. Or did the director or writer give you the backstory so you could play the scene? And the answers are very. Sometimes people are like, yes. They've been the asking White me. Lotus folks about this, yes. especially in Vulture. They've been like, oh, yeah, well, like Valentina, the woman playing Valentina said, yes. like, Mike did not give me a lot. 
Will Sharp seemed to have like a lot about Ethan though. So every actor is different. Some people want things, some people don't. Every writer is different. Some people love to load people. I mean, you know, there's no one way to get to it. The reason I bring it up is I rarely think about any of that when you're actually, when I'm engaging and watching something. And the moment in the car when Portia says, you, you fuck your uncle. What Leo Woodall does in that moment with his face and with his emotion and with his body, especially in comparison to the person that he's been for her and for us, all I was thinking about was he knows everything that happened. And it doesn't actually, you know, I, I want to be clear. I don't mean that like he had like a, a PowerPoint presentation of the events of Jack's life. I just mean his body remembers. You know, that, there's that trauma book, like body keeps the score. Sure. That's what I thought of in that scene. It was so, it was such an amazing a performance and moment. Top five trauma book for me. Is it? <laughs> you, did you seek solace in it after the disappointing events of the election this year in Arizona, in your home state, your adopted home state? Um. I thought that was just wild. And the attention the show does pay to class and employment dynamics too. You know, there, there's a there's a version of it where Portia like becomes a hero, right? And like gets the carabinieri and they, they have hydrofoils out to the yacht and they yeah. rescue Tanya. But this show doesn't exist in that world. This show exists in a world where- Self-preservation. Working, working for Tanya is weird and fucked up. Yeah bad shit, like catastrophically bad, you will be written about in TMZ and there will be a lifetime movie made about you in 10 years shit. doesn't really happen. You can't move your, through your life expecting it. So she gets on the airplane, right? Yeah, I mean, and she that, knows. She knows when Albie says there was a shootout on the boat and, and there's dead bodies in the water. I mean, she's like, that's Tanya. She knows. But it wasn't her Italian tragedy. It wasn't her story. She wasn't supposed to be there. She wasn't supposed to leave her room, right? And so... Again, like there's just these little moments that sprinkled throughout that were, you know, it, it, it's Tanya's is Greg cheating on me while Quentin's coughing up blood. It's it's Portia finding out what happened to people and then saying, can I get your number? Right. You know, life goes on and sometimes life's kind of trite. It's just wild. By the way, speaking of life going on, Maldives next season? No. Was that, in, was that an intentional My reference? brother, we are going to Japan apparently. Who says? Mike White says they're going to Asia. And Kaya was just, or Kaya was like, I think they're shooting in Japan. Okay, so I predicted, not Ka- on the microphone, Ka- so it Kaya, doesn't matter. Do you, I do predicted you wanna, Asia. Kaya, are you going on the record with that? Uh, this is like from what I've seen on an Instagram account I follow called uh, Dumois. So like, not Ka- super strong Kaya, on the record. Hell but- yeah. Way to go, Kaya. Way to get in the streets. Get the shoe leather going. Anon, please, Kaya. Come on, pretending we don't know about that. We're not that old. Excuse me. But, so Instagram account. So, 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 so the reports are okay. So Mike Mike White hints at Asia set season three focused on quote death and Eastern religion. Yeah, Asia f- would feel like the inevitable choice. I thought the reference to where they might go next was baked in. Yeah, and to be fair, he but, did actually say he said a little bit about like he teased the idea of basically continuing some of the storylines. So I don't know whether or not like anybody from season two will show up or, you know, I mean. I'm sure that they will. I feel like that's interesting to him. I thought like a place like Bali would make sense in terms of the like, the occasionally uncomfortable overlap between the performance of Eastern cultures and Western tourists and all of that. But look, he knows what he's doing, wherever he chooses. if Mike White will stay in Michael Mann's Tokyo apartment that he used to make Tokyo Vice. 
maybe they could get a lease together under the name Michael Whiteman. <laughs> I believe I believe that's the, the the person who's just put up a deposition for Carrie Lake. You know? I think that's right. I think that's right. So uh, I have a to to wrap up. I had a uh, I thought we could have this conversation, okay. which is essentially lessons of the lotus. Mm. So we just got through seven weeks two delightful months, basically, of talking about this show. This show has reached, I think, heights beyond even the wildest expectations of HBO, but maybe I'm wrong. I think that it has become a legitimate sensation in the incredibly small bubble that we exist in. We were, you, you and I were at a, a, a gathering on Saturday night, and it was honestly we the number, number one conversation topic, I feel like. You would walk into a kitchen, and you know people were talking about it, and then you'd walk outside, and people were talking about it. So... Big old hit. Rembrandt overalls? Or (laughs) Um, But it was a big old hit. Let's just put it that way for HBO. Um, So I thought we could come up with some lessons of the Lotus. Number one lesson for me. Uh Sunday nights matter. They still matter. There's still nothing like it, at least for our our purposes. Um, There's nothing like the anticipation that comes with people being excited for a show that ends the weekend and starts the week that slots right in so that the next day you can go in and just be like, Jesus Christ, you guys see that? What do you think is going to happen next? And, you know, we, we've sort of experienced so many different versions of this, whether it's, uh, 1899 going up all at once, whether it's Andor going up three at first and then one, 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 but then also going on FX, we've had, uh, so many different kinds of release models over the that, that have emerged out of COVID and now have become standard. Um, but there really is nothing like Sunday night, nine o'clock, your stories are on. And this is this is the one that sort of transcends almost all watching behavior. Is I I feel like some people like to have these things built up so that they can binge them. And some people like to watch Mandalorian <laughs> at six in the morning on Wednesdays, but I don't know a single person who's like, I'm not so into Sunday nights hanging out and watching TV. Also, shows about adult humans matter. I, I don't, I, I'm not relitigating House of the Dragon. I think there's room for, for big monocultural genre things up and down the board, and there should be. But there was something extra about this, right? That like people were watching it for a lot of different reasons, not to find out you know, who the dragon eats this week or whatever, or who 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 washes up on the shore, but because they saw pieces of themselves, maybe pieces of themselves they don't like, or other people that they know, there were a lot of different ways in, which felt really good. And I think the other part of it that was surprising to me in a good way, the approval, this is, again, this is all conversational. This is anecdotal. But people seem to really like the season. People seem to really like liking this season in the show. It hasn't reached a point where people aren't, don't seem to be hate watching it. They didn't seem to be watching it with an expectation that, oh, I hope we achieve the heights of the Connie Britton storyline in the first season. People were ready with these people and engaged with it on its own terms in a way that felt kind of rare, right? It did not feel to me, uh, maybe after the first or second week, to be constantly looking backwards, like people were comparing it. Right. That's, that's pretty rare too. You know, second years of things you can see diminishing results, even if those results are still at a benchmark that's successful for everyone involved to get you a third season. This feels like it's opening up and growing. And then you get this punctuation mark at the end of the season. that's like, nope, it's not just going to be what you thought it was. We're going to draw blood, even though we're an ongoing series now. Yeah. Um, 
remarkable. And well, I and and I, I didn't even answer your question. Sunday nights matter. Yeah, it matters. 1899, guys. I'm still watching it, but do I feel the sense of fun or urgency in watching? I mean, it's not a very fun show. <laughs> even when I like it, it's not a very fun show. But it does feel a little diffuse, you know, just to be checking in with my homies on the ship. They are on the ship, right, Chris? They, they're they, absolutely totally. It it's a nautical adventure from what one I one hundo on that ship. Um, okay, so lesson number one, Sundays still matter. Lesson number two from Andy is adults matter and having like yeah. shows where people can see something of themselves or their experiences that matters. Uh, this is the one that I was most interested to get your thoughts on is uh, all shows are mysteries now, question mark. So you kind of touched on this a little bit about the idea of drawing blood and I just thought I would throw this in there. I don't like praising one show at the expense of another and God knows that I you won't find very many success, bigger Succession fans than me. But I did think that these two shows were both like dramedies that got subsumed by the mystery box conversation around them mm-hmm. in some ways in terms of the discourse. And I thought that that probably benefited those shows, Succession and White Lotus, for in terms of like week-to-week audience. And especially probably if you miss the first one or second one and then you get caught up with it and then you're part of the you know the avalanche of speculation and people are breaking down um you know the art in the hotel and what dress tanya is wearing and how it's the same dress as apollonia and godfather and all this stuff and a lot of that same kind of easter egg hunting and deep textual analysis happened with succession last season and it was really about like what's going to happen and what's going to happen and what's going to happen and then as you got towards the end of the season of succession and this is i guess a spoiler for succession but there's that pregnant pause of a week where everybody is wondering whether or not Kendall is dead. Mm -hmm. I was incredibly excited about the idea of Kendall Roy dying, even though he's my favorite character on that show, because I thought it would have been brave and I thought it would have been a logical conclusion for that character. It was interesting to go through the Tanya experience. I don't know that I feel as like deeply invested in Tanya as I do in Kendall Roy, but that's what it feels like when nothing's sacred. And I think that if shows are going to commit themselves to being mystery in name only or everything but a mystery, but still a mystery or whatever you want to call this sort of phenomenon of turning adult dramedies into lost, then I think that the creators need to have a trigger finger and be willing to get rid of stuff because you got to feed the beast when you start to get into this this kind of uh, industry. The, the White Lotus is the perfect show for this moment. It almost, it, you'd think it was designed in a lab or a focus group, but it was just suggested by one person during a pandemic, which makes it even more incredible and probably makes it feel more vibrant and alive and worthwhile. But like, th- it is the answer to a question that hasn't really been, it can't really be consolidated into a single question, but it is an industry-wide wondering of like, how do we make TV in this moment? It's a question that also touches the wait. It's an ongoing now, but it's winning in limited series. What is it? Um, it's both. It's both. It's and it's 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 almost unique in that in that it's it starts new every year. It's new settings, new cast, new opportunities. You can rebrand. You can reboot. You can uh, get that marketing push that does matter. I mean, I remember this from conversations when I was on the other side of the ball. That like it's in some ways easier to break through with something new. It's hard to sustain, of course, but that is, there's value from the marketing department on that. You get all of that, but you also get some 
continuing DNA like the classic TV shows, you know? So it's remarkable for that. I, this is a bigger conversation maybe to be have, and maybe it's the conversation that we have on the pod when we're not talking election integrity, which is, and it's in some ways related to what Sam came in with hot last week when he started the, the you know, talking about TV regressing. Yeah. Maybe there are essentially three eras of, of, of television. There was all of TV until, I don't know, The Sopranos, <laughs> right? Which is yeah. just like, we're just going to keep churning it out. This might be biased around our lifespans, but yes. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but I also don't think Sergeant Bilko broke the mold. You know what I mean? I, I think we could talk about Love American style and fold it in comfortably into this conversation. It is funny, though, how uh, you'll be like, there's all of TV up, up until The Sopranos and like all the shows where like 51 million people were watching. Yeah, no, I, look. <laughs> we were talking about this with Sam off mic, like Cheers and Mash and Twin Peaks. Like, these all th- these things matter to me. ER, yeah. I just it's hard to compare them. But one of the reasons it's hard to compare them, but it's e- e- to the present day, is at a certain point all shows did become lost. Not in the way that we watch them, but the idea that shows or pilots need to be motivated by a question, and that the work of the series will be answering the question, not in a Reddit theory way, but like who's going to succeed, Logan Roy. Yeah. That's a question. Yeah. Now, what's different, though, and is worth putting, maybe I don't know what the exact moment where things broke in this direction would be. We could talk about it maybe on another pod. But like The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men did not start with a central question. You could sort of fudge it with Breaking Bad and be like, well, how did he end up as Scarface? But he didn't. It didn't start with a flashback. It didn't start with this guy is the drug lord of, of New Mexico. But now he's a teacher, huh? If you're pitching it today, it would. Yeah. Those three shows start the way... Every show did for 30 years, which is, here's a situation. Let's hang out for a while and we'll see what comes of it and see what happens. Those shows don't get made anymore. They don't. Even the shows that, uh, the reason Succession is a good thing to talk about is that Succession in some ways is the most normal of our leading contenders for best drama series every year. But it has a central question that motivates it, that fuels it, and that will ultimately end it. In a way that, you know, Northern Exposure didn't end when Maybe. he was less exposed. I mean, West, it, West Wing went on beyond Jed Bartlett's presidency. I, I, but the, you but know. West Wing wasn't a question. West yeah. Wing was like, yeah. hey, here's a guy who's president now and the people who work for him. Okay, what's next week? You know, it, it just, ER was, here's a hospital. It, the questions come up with terms of character arcs or plot points, but they are, but those shows were vessels that were built to, the star of, we've done this before, the star of ER was the hospital. The star of the West Wing was the West Wing. Yeah. And Rob Lowe, but the West Wing. Right. And then maybe the star of White Lotus is the hotel. But I think that the fact that maybe what felt like a, eh, I'll put a body in a coffin and to start just to kind of like get people interested the first season. The second season, I thought it was much more leaning into the idea of like, there was a, you know, and it's no accident that this thing, you know, the, the volcano going off the entire episode. Uh, we didn't is, even talk about that. Beautiful. Mount Etna, which is also where talented Mr. Ripley is set. Like this was much more of a Hitchcockian mm-hmm. kind of like murder in a foreign land kind of story. And I, I wonder whether season three, he'll, Mike White's a very interesting cat. Like he, you know, he, his interviews at the end of season one were very, 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 provocative I thought in terms of like both his kind of creative vision for the show and and his awareness of how people were watching it I haven't seen those yet you know this this up this season they didn't send screeners out there wasn't like a a bundle of Mike White finale for the finale and there wasn't like a ready like there wasn't already done Mike White interviews that dropped at 10.01 on Mm -hmm. on last night 
So we'll see what he says about the the show going forward. But I wonder whether or not he'll be like, this isn't a mystery. Like, I don't want to make a whodunit every every season. What this is about is putting people in what's supposed to be the most comfortable positions, but wind up being the most uncomfortable positions. I I also got to say, just he's just not built like the auteurs of previous shows or, or generations. You know, he doesn't. From I mean, maybe it'll be different when his interviews drop today or next week or whatever. But you know, I like when Matt Weiner would do interviews about Mad Men, which you know, I am not criticizing that show, which is almost total perfection for me. And I don't begrudge his willingness to do this, but his interviews would be like, well, the state of American manhood in the 20th century was this. Like he ran towards the larger significance and context and wanted to be on that, um, you know, at that lectern, having a say, having a stake, making a comment. And, And I think Mike White, especially in these interviews, it's partly effect. I mean, he's a performer too, you know, but I think it's also seems very genuine where he's just like, you know, I, I, I like kitchen sink dramas from Broadway because I read those and they felt classy to me. And I like probably Patricia Highsmith novels, but I yeah. also like Survivor and Fantasy Island. And I have some friends with interesting personality quirks and I took a trip with my dad once. Yeah. You know, he. I really think that what, one of the things that sustains and will sustain the success of the show is his humility about it. He's like, you know, I, I, I have an opportunity now in an audience and it's so fun to have that. Right. But what interests me still interests me. And and I and I don't think I, I just love that about the second season. I did think the first season tried to wrap its arms around some really big things and have something to say about them. And this season didn't shy away from big, big things, but I, I don't think it I mean the first, I, that's kind of a straw man argument. It was not a didactic season of television, you know, but this one just it just kept circling back into the kind of mushy middle of the people, which yeah. is really, really the kind of drama I like. And is really, really hard to do on TV in any era, but particularly in this overheated, how are we, you know, what questions are we solving? Who did it? What's going on era? Yeah. And I thought that, you know, he, he obviously knew what he was doing because the, the set dressing, the not Easter eggs, but like there was grist for the mill for people to analyze like, okay, what's the myth about this statue? Why is this head in the room? Why is this painting of uh, St. Margarita like on the wall? Like why is, Mm -hmm. you know, the the things that he was doing in that regard, I thought really did propel the conversation. It'll be interesting to see if he does that again uh, next season. The last lesson I had from this show, uh, which isn't unique to this show, but is a lesson done this just the same. And we haven't really mentioned this person's name that much in this uh, in this pod today is how desperately and how necessary it is for shows, be it a show in its fourth season, be it a show, it's a limited series, is that somewhere in the course of the season, there needs to be a gear shift. And the gear mm-hmm. shift in White Lotus season two is Tom Hollander. It really brought a sense of A, romance, B, mystery, and C, fun to the season Mm -hmm. that I didn't know that it had necessarily with just Tanya and being on the back of a a Vespa. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize like you manage these things like a bullpen, you know, and you can bring an arm out to change the game if you want to. And I would love to see more shows do this. Like, I think sometimes you can see the kind of like, this person has been hired for a three episode arc. Or I've also seen, frankly, you're not going to really care, but on Yellowstone, They've made a lot of mistakes where they've been. Yellowstone's made some mistakes where they're like, John Dutton has a vegan girlfriend now. 
you know, and it's like, eh, who among us? This is really not working, you know, and I don't, I don't really know like how much longer you can sustain this, but or how long Piper Parabo's contract is for, but this is now kind of getting in the way of what is already like a show that seems to be a little bit aimless. Like, I think that Mike's ability to say three episodes and then we're going to bring in a fireballer at the third or fourth episode. He did it with Molly Shannon. He did it with Tom Hollander. And it's just like an absolutely, just a perfect maestro way of controlling the orchestra. But I I love that observation. I also think it's relevant to what we were just saying about how to straddle the eras of television, because I think that bringing in someone to change the game, like that's a hallmark of long running serialized or not shows. Like I remember when Justified was out and then Margot Martindale comes on the show and everyone's like, oh my God, this is a totally different thing now, thanks to her. Or, you know, what was really good about that was um, Damages. You know, Mm. like, guess who's doing this now? Oh, Ted Danson's here. Wasn't Forrest Whitaker on the show? Like they would just call in these heavy, heavy hitters or big free agent signings to come wreck shop and change the show that had maybe, it hadn't even grown stale. But the perception that for another, which is another I, year. I think Andor thing. had that by the changing of the settings and like you get to, exactly. it's like fucking Andy Circus is here. This is like a completely different vibe. So what I mean is bringing that energy, making limited, making even short games, bullpen games. I mean, it's White Lotus season two. It's seven episodes. You have however many credited casts from Jump, nine people. Tom Hollander doesn't show up until what, three or four? Well, it's really only six episodes if you take out all the shots of water. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I feel the same way about 1899 because that also <laughs> is a show set on water from everything that I'm understanding from the discourse. Um, but you know what I mean? Like bringing that, that's a, that's a pretty exciting, chaotic disruption to bring to the limited series space because usually I think, you know, again, you're always looking for a way to, to, to switch it up, to surprise people. And I think that we have settled into like, okay, six episode limited series look who they got for this. Like, Fleischman's in trouble. It's like, okay, we got Eisenberg, we got Kaplan, we got Danes. They're on the poster. We're good. You know, we don't need to start scouting the waiver wire in episode three. Right. But it's a good, it's a really good observation for how to keep people entertained and to just not settle. Yeah. Even within something that is relatively limited. We can wrap it up there. I thought it was a great season of television. Um, So fun. Yeah. That was really fun talking about it this season. Andy and I will be back on Thursday. I think we're going to talk about the English because that is yeah. a show that wound up on Andy's top 10 kind of out of nowhere. I mean, you know, really we, without much discussion on this pod. And uh, I've since caught up and I got a lot to say about it. So if you don't know what that is, that is the Emily Blunt Western that's on Amazon Prime. Comes from Hugo Blick, who did one of our favorite shows of the last 10 years, Honorable Woman. And... Really excited to chat about that. It, really, really, really unique and inventive show. It is really worthwhile. You may not like it. You may love it. It's beautiful. It's confounding. It's surprising. It's really worthwhile. And yeah. I think people should check it out. All the episodes are on uh, Amazon now. So we're going to chat about that. We're also going to get we're going to get really deep into finding out whether or not Henry Cavill's coming back as Superman, Andy. I've got I'm uh, dying to know. <laughs> I got I got reporters on the ground in four different countries trying to figure it out. Uh, thank you to Kaya McMullen for producing us today. We will be back on Thursday. Hope everybody enjoyed the season of White Lotus and uh, we'll talk to you again. Michael White Man versus Black Adam. That's all. I've, I've just been tweeting that at James Gunn. <laughs> for not, Yeah. But we're not ready to have that conversation. <laughs> okay. Bye.